Hello, listeners and citizens of Broncos country. My name is Adan Diaz, and I am joined by my co-host, Richie Rich Richie. And welcome to another exciting episode of Broncos Talk. Rich, how you doing today, my friend? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I mean, I can't complain. Coming off of another uh, Super Bowl, Super Bowl 55. And, you know, we talked about it last week. Uh, it was hard to pick a winner. I honestly thought it was going to be a whole lot closer than what it was. I wasn't expecting a blowout. But I, I got to tell you, I don't feel bad that the Chiefs lost. I'm actually feeling better, if not happier, than if we had to come on here live and say, hey, uh, you know, it's uh, the Chiefs got a back-to-back. So now, you know, they're tied with Lombardi trophies with the, with the Broncos. But thankfully, that didn't happen. And at this moment in time, the Broncos still lead in terms of being the only team in the AFC West to win back-to-back titles. I agree. So, uh, breaking down what we saw, Rich, uh, let me just start by saying that I think that if the the Kansas City offense went in there a little bit too cocky for for my liking, they went in there trying to do what they've been doing since the beginning of the season, and basically kind of gambling, if if anything at that. They went in there with their offensive line kind of being held by duct tape. Kind of like how the duct tape that was being held by, by the Broncos secondary was the exact same tape job that was used in the offensive line for the Kansas City Chiefs. And I honestly thought that, you know, Andy Reid or, or even Eric Bieniemy would kind of scheme different plays, incorporate more um, uh, screen passes, more more run game try to use something to their advantage because if the Bucks front D line was going to be that vicious and from what we saw Mahomes was running away for his life I mean he had almost 500 yards if I'm not mistaken and just scrimmage yards by himself that the Kansas City offense did not live up to par and they were just running around Mahomes trying to make these diving throws playing with a, a an injured toe and God only knows what else after he got twisted like a pretzel on one play. Yeah, I mean, Casey, Casey just kind of got dominated up the middle. So what ended up happening was is that Mahomes, Mahomes likes to kind of do roundabout circles in the middle part of the pocket to try and extend out plays. He, he actually doesn't want to run, right? Like he, he's he's more of like a a mobile pocket passer. So if you force him off his spot and let him get out of contain or break contain or give him a lane to run, he will. What his toe prevented him from doing in the Super Bowl was those, it was like 20, 30 yard runs that you sometimes see from him during the game. We really didn't see those from him uh, in the Super Bowl, right? But what we did see from the Tampa Bay Bucks defense was that pressure straight up the middle, which is basically the shortest distance to get to the quarterback. And that's the fastest way to get a pocket passer out of their out of their place, break their vision, and force them to hold onto the ball longer. No, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, like me and you were kind of talking about before we went live on the air today, the the Buccaneers got Vita Vea back at the perfect time, and you know him with Nadama and Sue. You made a point about how these guys were just literally pushing the offensive like they weren't even there. It's it's just amazing, and and like I just finished saying earlier, I thought that you know having an offensive minded coach like uh, Eric Bieniemy and then with Andy Reid, 
at the helm that they would use more plays to their advantage where if the front d-line can get in push then you can have a, a, a guy like edward Delaire. i don't know where Le'Veon bell was he i don't even think he suited up the play but kansas city got away from the running game and i even told this in uh, on social media where i said if the kansas city defense keeps falling behind then the offense is going to start making more mistakes because they're going to get desperate. They're going to have to start throwing the ball more. And, uh, you, you know, credit to Todd Bowles. I'll, I'll admit I'll eat some crow. After the, the Bucks got destroyed by the Saints, I kind of shut down anything about Todd Bowles. I, you know, I thought he was, uh, uh, I, I don't know, a fluke or whatever. I thought he was done. But that defense found a way to turn it around and come back. So I will eat some crow on that. I will admit he did a fantastic job calling and taking advantage of the weaknesses that Kansas City had uh, was showing. I've always liked Todd Bowles. I, I, I have always liked him. In fact, even when he was in New York, you saw flashes where you almost felt bad for him, where you said, eh, if he just had like a, a piece here and a piece there and a piece there, he, he'd really elevate that team. So I, I always thought he was a, he was a great coach. Um, it was that middle pressure in my opinion, that really did them in. And actually, the other piece that actually furthered that, which I think, you know, as Broncos fans, we really do need to uh, keep an eye out for, is they had the interior pressure, which basically forced Mahomes off his spot. But then what really threw him for the loop was when you have two middle linebackers that can cover sideline to sideline and take away that immediate short throw, as like almost like the safety valve that most QBs will use in those situations to get the uh, ball out of their hands. Uh, we saw Levante David absolutely just destroy Cat Travis Kelsey in coverage. Um, and White, again, we can't be discounting what he did either. Um, it was, it was real. I'll be honest, I actually think they did a better job than our Super Bowl 50 linebackers did for our team i think when you look at the two of them combined i think they did a better job than our two uh middle linebackers on the super bowl 50 defense uh i would say close but if i would agree with that statement if von miller didn't win super bowl mvp uh but that comparison has been made on social media since the bucks won the super bowl about no, um, inside linebacker right yeah, uh, well, yeah I, I thought you meant all linebackers in general, inside and out. No, 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 that's, no, no. That's what I thought you were addressing. Oh, okay, inside linebackers. Then, yeah, I can agree with that. Just that sector. Um, I, I could honestly tell you that you could put that defense in the category as those defenses. You know, the 2000 Ravens, the 2015 Broncos, uh, and or the '85 Bears, which are some of the most noted defensive Super Bowl defenses in in the NFL. But at the end of the day, I was really expecting Tom Brady to, you know, come in so charged up and make mistakes like he's been making, like he he met in Green Bay. I mean, in Green Bay, he threw, what, three interceptions? And the fact that the Packers weren't able to turn those into points was just anything but favorable. I mean, that that Bucks defense pulled Tom Brady out of a a really, uh, what could have been a really bad situation. But at the at the same time, I mean, the man won seven rings. People are are who didn't couldn't didn't call him a goat at the time are now calling him a goat or the goat. Well, at some point you have to look at what was done, right? At some point you have to look at 
um, you have to look at basically the fact that he broke apart and broke away from, you know, under the thumb, so to speak, of, um, you know, Bill Belichick and basically showed that, you know, no, 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 no. He may have been great at what he did. I am just as good in my own right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's time at this point here that, you know, that we, that we reckon, you know, recognize that fact. No, I totally get that. And, you know, I actually saw a side of Tom that as much as I've been following him in his career, uh, you know, when he was 20 years with New England, that, uh, and it's, it's actually that play where I believe it was after the second touchdown and, it was it was that little that kind of like inner interchange that Brady had with uh, Tyron Matthew, so and that's been actually been talked about all over social media because nobody besides those two guys and maybe some teammates that were around him knows what was said. But the fact that Tom Brady walked over or jogged over, I should say, to Tyron Matthew after he was jogging off the the field and kind of they they were reciprocating, it it's actually a sign of of. It's kind of weird, at least to me it was, because, you know, I always pictured Tom Brady as being the poster child. And, you know, obviously when you're getting into the Super Bowl, everybody's in a whole different mood. You know, the trash talking is more intense. The the rivalries are more intense. Everything is, is elevated. But Tom Brady took it to a whole nother level. And the fact that Matthews got flagged simply because, in my opinion, the ref saw him wave a finger at Tom Brady's face. I honestly thought that both guys should have been flagged, you, you know, because it, it was taunting when Brady ran over to Matthews. That could have been considered taunting and, you know, it should have been offsetting penalties at the most. I actually agree with that. Uh, just before we get going, I uh, just want to say hi to all the people that are in the chat. Vic, Mike, and... Uh, Wannabees. Hey, buddy. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. Um and I, I do have to agree with uh, MHRT there. Um, the mothership uh, chiming in. Um, Brady is is like a, a Jordan. Uh, there's only a handful of people that are elevated to that level. Uh, I would argue Peyton is is also one of those guys too. Um, you notice how when Peyton got built, Peyton did it more subtly than Brady, right? Brady, Brady will come right back at you and say you remember what you did to me five years like he would come right back out and say it to your face but what Peyton will do is he goes about it kind of the roundabout way and he'll it'll come out in like a press conference like a year and a half later even some of these things have come out where you know someone did something to Peyton and he remembered it and he's like you know I guess he writes it down or other other than that he's got literally like an elephant memory uh, <laughs> and, and you hear about these things where Peyton remembers that another team taunted his team and then they did something in retaliation to it so then what Peyton will do is he kept it in his memory bank and then he'd bring out a play that basically made them look bad by doing the exact opposite thing that they tried to do to him like two years ago and you and then you always saw him kind of do one of those fist pumps like I got you kind of deal and then it comes out a couple of years later that he did it on purpose to try and rub it in their face as almost like a not passive aggressive, but you know what I mean? That's like kind of like a, oh, you thought I forgot, did you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, Rich. And yeah. uh, I just uh, like it, it was a pretty much shocker uh, because I took in. I remember when uh, the, the day after the Super Bowl 48, after the Broncos got stomped by Seattle, 
and most of the heckling I got that day, I got from Chiefs fans. And it was just like, you know, you embarrassed the, the AFC West division. How could you go on and, you know, and, and embarrass us like that and blah, blah, blah. So I, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and tell you I, I didn't return the favor because I, I sure as hell did. Uh, most of the Chiefs fans that I know are friends that I'm really close with. I, I sent them that picture of the meme of um, I forgot the name of the player who waved the, the, the peace sign at Tyree Kill, uh, even though he got called for unsportsmanlike. But I don't know about you, Rich, but I felt that when he did that, it was Winfield. Thank you, Winfield. Uh, When he did that, I feel like he wasn't just talking for Tampa Bay Buccaneers who remembered when Tyreek Hill did that that backflip into their end zone. And I I, I actually, I'm surprised. I thought, you know, Tyreek was going to flip. I thought he was going to start a fight. Uh, But unfortunately, luckily he took it on the chin and he's like, okay, well, now we know that he can dish it out. But he can take it, too, when it happens to him. Well, I have to say, so Winfield, his father played uh, in the NFL as well. So, I mean, we do need to be understanding or, or have a pretty solid understanding that, you know, he had the benefit of having his father coach him up his entire life, the nuances of an, of an NFL game, and knowing the right time to do the right thing to avoid it. If you notice, he waited to do that, even though that they had pretty much stymied Hill almost the entire game. So it's not like there wasn't other opportunities for that sort of thing to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he waited until the game was completely out of reach in the fourth quarter. Later in the game, it, it was it was almost what a savvy vet would do, and the guy's a rookie, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and. Yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, looking what other other people and other players have said, like even Shannon Sharp made a comment similar to that today where he said, you look at what he did and, and it was it wasn't just that he did it. It was when it was timed. And mm-hmm. and I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I thought it was it was at the perfect moment for something like that to happen in retaliation for the flagrant move that was done by Tyreek Hill earlier. I thought it was perfect. I thought it was uh, it was the only time where I'm like I'm totally okay with that being like for for someone taking a taunting penalty because it has zero impact on the game and frankly given circumstances earlier it needed to be done. Yeah, and I, I actually got into it with a couple of people on social media because they they were angry that Tyreek didn't get flagged when he does it. But most of the time when Tyreek does it, he's literally running into the end zone or he's like a few feet away where it's not technically in their face. So I think the unsportsmanlike rule is you can't do it in front of their, their, you know, literally in front of them because it's considered taunting or it depends on what they're doing while they're, I don't know. The rule is kind of sketchy, but I, I can see why people were would make that rule. Uh, so let's take in some comments here, Rich. Uh, Chris Hernandez, welcome to the show. Hope you're feeling better, my friend. He says, I was good with the peace sign. He was just paying it forward. Glenn Hauser, good friend of mine, he says, none of that loss is on Mahomes. He gave everything he had, and the scrambling and passing was crazy. And that's what we we, we were talking about just now, uh, Glenn. Uh, I'm sorry, Rich, was that Mahomes literally played probably his best game of the season in terms of trying to find guys that are open. Uh you know, getting twisted up like a pretzel and still coming in there and, you know, trying to make a play, trying to get a touchdown. 
And the fact that the Chiefs only put up nine points, it's like, uh, I, I mean, it, it's something. I, at least it's not a, you know, like a giant goose egg, which would have been way worse. I also think just to Glenn's point there, I think what needs to be called out is Mahomes was getting hit and on his way down, there was two throws that I can remember. There, there may have actually been more, but there was two throws in that game where he was either in the process of falling to the ground or was in the air and threw a ball and both balls hit his rec- his receiver in the numbers and they both were dropped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important to make note of is that if you're going to try and point blame or, or whatever, you can't really put that back at Mahomes because in situations like that, so are more often than not. And, you know, this is what kind of annoys us as Broncos fans with the Chiefs is is those are the plays that he makes. And then you're and you're kind of saying that's just not fair. Because, you know, the guy shouldn't be able to make a throw and have it land on the numbers in the middle of a game. And then so, so often that then becomes a building block of like a, a catalyst for the team's confidence. And then it just gets stepped up and up and up and up. And then eventually, you know, it just becomes almost like backyard football where you're just saying, okay, well, they scored 30 points somehow in 10 minutes. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, there there was one pass to Tyreek Hill that literally for the first time that I've seen highlights of him went right through his hands and hit him square in the face. Yeah. And it was just like I was just sitting there like, dude, you you have to you have to catch that. You the fact that the Chiefs how much money they're spending on, you know, keep trying to keep this team together, you have to catch that ball. There is no way that that ball should have gotten through your hands and literally hit him in the face. But uh, I, I, I agree with you, Rich. I totally agree with you. And the one thing that, that, that Patrick Mahomes kept doing is the one thing that I, every time Drew Locke tried to do, I always condoned him and not doing, which was throwing off of his back foot. And Mahomes is just like literally flying in midair, throws a perfect ball 20, 30 yards, and the wide rec- his targeted wide receiver dropped it. But the fact that the coaching could not adapt or change the fat uh what the, their, their scheme to me is really why Kansas City lost I mean if the offense is seeing that Travis Kelsey's getting locked down Tyree Kill is getting locked down Sammy Watkins was was good to go I think he only had one catch they didn't incorporate him into the game and like I said earlier the, the running game just disappeared after maybe mid third quarter where you know they do have a good guy in Clyde Zolaire maybe they didn't have any trust in the running game I don't know what happened but for them it was pretty absent uh, the Bucks, on the other hand, they did have a, a running touchdown with Leonard Fournette, who just ran past the defense. That by that time, they just looked like they were they were done. <laughs> um, well, the other thing that I was really happy to see, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens going into next year, was the Super Bowl had the Chiefs defense finally, like finally, get called for holding on some of those plays um we saw so many times where um Sorensen um he might be one of the dirtiest safeties I've, I've seen play in a while um <laughs> like seriously and and we saw a few other of the dbs and stuff for the chiefs like they were doing it all the time they're they're doing this and they're doing this and and they like to they like to loop in underneath where the shoulder pad is and and because it's not pulling of the jersey, it doesn't look quite as obvious. But what it does is it prevents the receiver from trying to pull away from them. And um, 
we, we saw that all game and and finally the Chiefs were getting called. Mm-hmm. Like they were finally getting called in the Super Bowl and Chiefs fans were up in arms about the fact that they got all these flags and it's like, well, then tell your guys to actually play football and stop holding the guy five yards past the line of scrimmage. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. Like if you're holding and you're causing a penalty and you're causing pass interference or whatever the case may be, don't do it and then you won't get called. Um, you know, it's like tell my kids, like, guess what? If you if you don't follow the rules, you're gonna get in trouble. So if you don't want to get if you don't want to get in trouble, then start following the rules. Not rocket science. No, I, I totally agree with you, uh, George Moravi. Mar- I hope I said that right. Thanks for uh, watching the show, and he has a question for us, Richie. And he says, "How much do you think uh, Andy Reid's son getting into a car accident the night before affected him?" Now, this is a very good question, George, uh, George and Rich, because this is something that was actually brought up on the the sports shows uh, yesterday, and I have to tend to agree that I, I actually think that it did have a, a uh, an effect on him because, if I'm not mistaken, Rich, before the halftime show, Andy Reid called a timeout and basically gave the Bucks a chance to not only catch their breath but you know kind of reformat themselves and it's it's kind of like what kind of like what Vic Fangio did against the Raiders uh in in our last game where he called the timeout and he gave John Gruden and the Raiders a chance to kind of get their you know ducks in a row and then they end up going in for a score so I I'd have to believe that I don't think Andy Reid's head was completely in it maybe he was making choices that or decisions that weren't really where where you'd see him make uh, a year ago and it was kind of like maybe he let i don't know the enemy kind of run the show and or, or something was going on but I, I would have to say that i do agree i don't think that andy reed was 100 percent at this game i know his mind was wandering elsewhere and it it kind of showed in in the coaching uh yeah, I have to imagine from all accounts, from everything anyone has ever said about Andy Reid, and one of the reasons why ever, even even as an opponent, uh, you don't have a whole ton bad to say about Andy Reid as an individual, right? Um, that's kind of, it's one of those things, it's almost like Gronkowski, right? He played with the Patriots all those years, and as much as you really wanted to hate him just because he was just that good, he just had a certain personality where you're like, I really should dislike you, but I don't, <laughs> right? Um, and so I have to imagine that that Andy Reid, with his son being a family man, all accounts are that he's he's all in with his family and his wife and all the and, and kids. You have to imagine that he was probably you know part of his mind was elsewhere, and it came at a really bad time. That being said, as I understand it, this is not his son's first issue with uh, alcohol and driving, as as what I was told. So, you know, it's one of those things where I would say details are important. And if you know that one of your sons who is within your organization and reflects on you as a head coach, as much as you hate to do it, you almost think that you need to plan for some of that kind of stuff just to ensure that you're protected as a as an organization and as a coach. But with regards to play calling and stuff like that, um, you do then have to wonder what happened then. Because Eric Bieniemy is on the sidelines, as much as I'm sure it would have some impact on Eric as well, 
it, it surely wouldn't have had the same impact on Eric as, say, Andy Reid, right, being his son. So did Andy just not relinquish the play-calling duties during the game to Eric, even if he was in that position? And if so, then I think that does reflect, we'll say, kind of Vic Fangio-esque on uh, on Andy Reid. And, and just one more point on that. Andy Reid has, up until recently, has, has had very similar comments made to him about time management, the same as we've had about Vic, uh, Vic Fangio. So I, I don't think this is anything new when it comes to um, time clock and timeout and, you know, anything to do with like the little nuances of the game. He's always he's had those issues for, for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's totally right. The only difference is, Rich, is that uh, Vic Fangio is going into his third year as head coach and his feet are literally an inch away from the flames so that kind of error mistake cannot happen again because any mistake that Vic Fangio makes going forward it's not going to be hey he's still learning that ship has sailed it's not hey because of COVID that ship has sailed and you know the injury bug let's all go to church say a prayer pray to whoever you believe to that the injury bug does not come back full circle like it did last year but it, 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 it just goes to show you just how important it is for coaching mentality in, in the Super Bowl. And the fact that if one person on your coaching staff is literally not 100% out in there or even a bit just off, the ramifications it can have are just crazy. And, you know, I think that this actually proved to not just uh, NFL fans around the world, but... To, to Chiefs fans and maybe even their front management, just how just how much Andy Reid is is needed in Kansas City, and it could even you could even say what the future looks like once Andy Reid leaves Kansas City, and you know what's going to happen with everything that he built there and how it can change. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw some of the pre game stuff I, I did find it really interesting how he operated or operates rather even now where <laughs> I kept on I kept on thinking back to Shermer could probably learn a few things um, so Andy apparently has a completely open door policy so there's this little spiel at the beginning of the pregame show where the janitor from Green Bay came to his office and said, I have a play for you. And then Andy said, yeah, I'm sure you do. And then he came back another time and then Andy said, well, just write it down to see what it is. <laughs> right? And and lo and behold, in the playoff game or this is either Super Bowl or playoff game, um, the play that the janitor wrote down was used and it scored a touchdown. Oh, wow. So that, and that made it into the pregame kind of preamble of the Super Bowl and whatnot. So apparently he's got a completely open door policy. Now he also prefaces it with, I have 51% veto power, so deal with it. And, and he, but, he, but he also says that I will never turn away someone coming to me with what they believe is a good idea and I will analyze it and it will honestly and truly get a fair shake as I apply it. And if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. And 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 then I thought forward to Shermer, and I'm saying, hmm, I think Shermer could use a little bit of that. <laughs> well, 
that that's uh, that's still yet to be proven, Rich. But seeing as how we are halfway through the show, Rich, and it's technically our halftime, mm-hmm. I thought we would talk about a little bit about what your thoughts were on the halftime show, which was presented by Pepsi and which featured The Weeknd, a guy that I'm pretty sure a lot of people over a certain age group had a Google who didn't know who The Weeknd was. Um, I I gotta tell you, I wasn't a fan of of everything he did. I thought it was weird. Uh, I, I was really expecting me personally. I like collaborations. I like when you know they invite other artists and stuff, even if it is just to sing, uh, you know, a song or two, or they join on a song together. I I thought it was kind of, I thought it was weird. I didn't think it was great. Like. Uh, I only liked one song by The Weeknd anyway, which was uh, Blinding Lights, and he sang that towards the end. Uh, To me, personally, I thought, to me, the best halftime show so far is a tie between the one that Michael Jackson did uh, in that uh, Super Bowl with the Bills and the one that Bruno Mars did at Super Bowl 48, which it was a one-man show. He he played, he sang, he danced. It's fantastic. Yeah, Bruno Mars was excellent. Um, he really was. And um, well, for those of you who don't know, I'm from the GTA. That's a Greater Toronto area. And uh, the weekend actually uh, was born and raised uh, right near. Actually, I was born uh, and raised until I was six uh, in a similar area. Um, I grew up in Scarborough, so uh, I he and I are kind of originally from a similar neck of the woods in terms of the location. Um, I uh, I thought it was weird. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I thought there was some good stuff. I thought there was some not so good stuff. I actually liked the middle of the field piece. Like I actually liked when they had everyone kind of in the field and and did that element of the show. But I just, I think that the vision with the lights and the hallways and the movement and that kind of stuff, I think on paper, it probably looked really good. And then I think when it's practically applied in a dark setting in a stadium and a Super Bowl, you're probably going to look back at it and say, not what I was hoping for. Yeah. Glenn Hauser says, I thought he did great considering the lack of an audience. Well, I, I can, I thought. It was going to be a great show, Glenn, and you're right to a certain point, the lack of an audience. I thought that would leave, you know, some more room to imagination. The ending where everybody was dressed like him, I thought it was going to be something like Thriller, you know, where everybody was just going to start Thriller dancing or, or, or something. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it, it was terrible. I'm just saying it was weird. It, maybe because I've never seen The weekend in Concert. Uh, let alone on on TV, I, I hear his music. Uh, so hopefully that leaves something to what they do in SoFi uh, next year. Uh, so, but he also adds, I saw that Bruno halftime person halftime show in person. He was unreal, and when the RHCP came out too, it was awesome. Yeah, Glenn was there for that show. Matter of fact, uh, in New Jersey. So he had a front row seat along with uh, all of our other crying Broncos fans on that unfateful day. Uh, But going back to the game, Rich, uh, and we talked a little bit about this uh, 
before we came on live, people have been saying that maybe what the Bucks defense did was basically the blueprint on how other teams, including our loved, beloved Broncos, can use to shut down that uh, explosive Kansas City offense. But what some people have to consider is that the offensive line for Kansas City was was shot. It wasn't at 100%. When they come back in week one, that offensive line is going to be or should be back to, you know, first first starter status. So with that being said, uh, you talked about how great Levante David was at shutting down Travis Kelsey. It, hopefully the Bucks don't pony up money to keep him. And, you know, maybe the Broncos can go out and get a guy like Levante David to, to come in and, you know, help us shut down Travis Kelsey twice a year. Uh, the double teams on on Tra- on uh, Tyreek Hill, uh, I mean, people have been doing that for for the longest. Uh, that that's no surprise. But the fact that they don't rely on their other receivers, like you know, McCole Harmon or Sammy Watkins, uh, that kind of was a bit of a head scratcher on the offense. So uh, there's bits and pieces that the Bucks defense did that other teams can you know kind of incorporate into their own. But I wouldn't say it's a full blueprint where it's like just that's exactly what you got to do and if you do it just like them then you can shut out that that offense um i i think it'll work almost every time uh, i just do uh, if you look at the way that tampa was beating uh, uh the chiefs they really did not beat the replacement tackles uh that regularly i mean they did beat them you know, somewhat regularly, but they didn't just beat them over and over again. Like it's not like Shaq Barrett was right in the face of just of uh, Patrick Mahomes every single play. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, as a Broncos fan, you remember what happened with Von Miller. You know, Cam Newton, you know, and Von Miller were basically shaking hands before he looked up after catching the snap, right? Like, right. and there's quite literally a few times where Von Miller, there was at least twice in the game where Von Miller literally went up before Cam came up with the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and and Cam no longer had the ball, um, right? So I, I don't. That's not the way that that the, the Bucks beat Mahomes. What the Bucks used to beat Mahomes was to use those middle three, like we were talking about earlier in the pod, and and they literally just destroyed. What was kind of funny actually was the Bucks did not beat the Chiefs by beating the replacements. The Bucks beat the Chiefs by beating the interior that were the same interior linemen that the Chiefs were using all year long, which I thought was really interesting because at least one of those offensive linemen from the Chiefs in the previous game versus Buffalo, I don't know if you uh, saw it, um, he literally took a Buffalo player, and I, I again, this is the only other time I've ever seen this happen is when Buffalo did this to us. Um, <laughs> that's unfortunate too, is he literally took a guy, lifted him in the air with one hand and then threw him straight backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that. I and remember. I looked at that and I said, oh, yeah, we're in trouble. As soon as I saw that happen yeah. against Buffalo, right? So I actually think that what the Chief, what the Bucks did is absolutely the way to beat the Chiefs on a go-forward and consistent basis because they pressured up the middle, forcing Mahomes to hold on to the ball a little bit longer. That helps your edge get to the outer and contain so that he can't get out of the pocket and run. And then add on to that the speed of the middle linebacker position to take away the safety valves of of a Travis Kelsey or um, you know pick your running back that they happen to have in at any given moment. 
And that's really the way that I think you can beat them long term. I would also argue that the Broncos are not that, like, from a defensive scheme perspective, I think Fangio already showed you that he is clearly capable of beating the Chiefs. He's just missing a few players. He doesn't have that interior push, and he does not have the speed at his linebacker position to do the same things that the Bucks did. But Fangio is more than capable of beating the Chiefs twice a year. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that if he can get us a Chiefs win in the 2021 season, that will go a long way in trying to extend his tenure as head coach for, for the Broncos. Agreed. Uh, Chad Mar- Marcel- Marcellius, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you got to send me a, a, a DM how to pronounce your last name. I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. Thanks for watching the show. And he asks, so if the draft was today, who do we want at pick nine? A cornerback or a four-down linebacker or, or other? Get stuff guys i'm guessing he's saying guys that can stuff stuff to run and this is actually a pretty interesting question uh rich because it's it seems that with uh talks heating up about you know trying to get guys like deshaun watson and today i saw an article about the broncos going out and trying to get somebody like russell wilson uh who we'll maybe talk about if we have time at the end of this at the end of the show but to answer chad's question I think that the Broncos, if they can go and get somebody like Levante David or somebody of that caliber in free agency, then they can for sure, uh, you know, rely on a cornerback like uh, uh, Fairly. He's a, a highly regarded cornerback. I, I'm just saying, I don't know college. I don't watch college football, so I don't know who's the best, who's the worst. I'm just going off of by what you know people project, and right. uh, I usually listen to my good friend, uh, Mr. Boggins who knows more about that stuff than I do. But and I, I trust Fangio because Fangio had an inkling about Ojemudia and he wasn't wrong, but he wasn't completely right either. But Ojemudia, obviously his rookie season, every cornerback or linebacker or defensive player, or whatever, in the rookie season, not everybody's going to outshine. So, you know, you give Ojemudia another year or so, he can be another great uh, d- defensive cornerback. I agree. Um, to answer the question... I do not believe that our defensive coach and Vic Fangio and his staff, including Donatel, both with subspecialties in defensive back positions. I don't think we need to go after a cornerback. And and I know that I am in a minority when it comes to some of the more popular kind of sports shows out there. In my opinion, if we can get a Levante David, that really only covers half of our linebacking position. We need to get another speed person in the interior linebacking spot. Now, again, an unpopular dis- you know comment here is if we did get Levante David, in my opinion, uh, he needs to replace Jewel. If we have to pick, like, so if we're put in a position where we must pick between johnson or jewel i realize jewel is still under contract and will remain on the team but if you're saying who should co-start with uh levante david my comment there would be pretty simple it would be you try to bring alexander johnson back on a cheap kind of team friendly deal because I don't think he's highly regarded in a ton of teams in the NFL. I do think that he has some skills, but he's not this all-world middle linebacker. And ultimately, you then look at a inter- an inside linebacker in the middle rounds of this draft, where 
outside of the first one or two inside linebackers, everyone else is kind of in the middle. And again, relying on our defensive coach, who is excellent uh, in Vic Fangio and Donatel, I think you can develop someone. Who I want us to try and target is I would like us to take our draft capital at number nine and pull a swap with another team or pull some, you know, swapping of picks in general. I would like us to try and target uh, Daron Payne from the Washington football team as an interior complement defensive lineman. Bear with me. I know this is a, a rogue idea from, you know, out of left field from most, right? But the problem that we have in this year's draft is that the interior defensive line, which is, in my opinion, what we saw in the Super Bowl and what we actually need on our team, is that right dead center push of the interior of the pocket. They're not very good in this particular draft. There's not a whole ton of them that are excellent. So either we go to free agency and we try to target someone like maybe like a Williams from a Buffalo who might be coming up as a free agent, depending on kind of how that how things fall there. Or we go to the, a young guy like a Daron Payne, who's just at the back end of his rookie contract, work around some of our draft capital and get him in who, who I think he can really he's phenomenal. He's exactly what we're missing. Right. I mean, it all depends on how teams uh, go around restructuring uh, because uh, I know I said this last week, uh, Rich, this could be one of the craziest free agency uh, shopping sprees we see in a while, uh, simply simply because of, uh, you know, the salary cap. Uh, we have yet to see how teams are going to try to, you know, work around that. And if certain players on certain teams aren't willing to take, you know, team friendly deals and try to restructure and you know pour some money back into the back into the team so the team in, in question can incorporate and, and better themselves then we could see guys on different teams that on a normal salary cap or on a normal season without you know the pandemic so to speak that we wouldn't uh, that we wouldn't see moves being made uh, you know, unless you're the the New York Jets, because if I'm not mistaken, the Jets have probably one of the biggest salary caps uh, next to Jacksonville in currently in the league. So they can pretty much sign whoever they want and not have to worry about, uh, you know, penalties and, you know, restructuring and, and what have you. Uh, that still leaves a lot to be said about what's going to be done with Sam Darnold. If he goes or if he stays, depends on what the Jets do with uh, the number two pick. And I, I just think that whoever the Broncos do get at number nine, I at like at least like to think that I trust Vic Fangio's uh, say in it. I don't think he's going to be the one that makes the call. I'm pretty sure he's going to give uh, Peyton his his two cents as well as John Elway give his two cents, and then you know Peyton's the one that's going to uh, make the decision. But if the Broncos go off and, and gamble that you know on a trade somewhere and try to land a quarterback or or whoever i i just think that that and i'm not just saying this because i i, I love drew lock but i'm just saying that that's gambling with the team's future and if it doesn't pan out for however long said player is in denver it's just gonna it's just gonna be hanging over our heads you know and when we see whatever player people want on another team then we're just gonna be sitting there saying hey look that guy could have been on our team. He could have been having a stellar year in Denver as a Bronco and, and what have you. And that, to me, is something that can can eat at me <laughs> for as long as I live. 
Right. My, my big thing here is, uh, again, I'm not of the opinion of a ton of other people, at least that I've heard speak kind of publicly and, and whatnot, is I looked at what we did in the red zone as a team. So 20 to 20, fine. Most teams can move up and down the field. That's fine. That's great. But what happens when the defense is compressed? What happens when they can stack more of the box and they can really take away kind of those like crossers and and, and that kind of stuff? What happens then? And what we saw this year in particular and just in general was our offensive line was not able to bully our way into the end zone. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a huge concern because what is the fastest and easiest way to help a young quarterback gain confidence and gain kind of that extra, Oh, I can do this. Or yes, we, you know, we have a, like we have a shot. Yeah. It, it's, it's that interior push up the middle to get a running touchdown in the red zone, which then bolsters your young quarterback's confidence as the game progresses. And you can start building on that. You know, we talked about Mahomes making those quick kind of weird wonky throws. The team then kind of builds on top of that kind of stuff. We were not very good in that category this past year. And in my opinion, that speaks to real problems on the interior, particularly of the offensive line, and us not being able to push around the other team to get into the end zone. Um, so to, to me, I, I think I think we need to keep that number nine pick. And I need to I think we need to maybe trade back with another team to then get another player from that team is almost like a means of like, we're almost trading a one, but not getting rid of our one. Like it's almost like a creative way of making that happen where if we were to trade away number nine, we would potentially get another one maybe next year for, for trading away the ninth pick to somebody else or maybe an extra two. So it's almost that equivalency to say, oh, we'll give you a second for that player. We really like that player because he's going to help us now. To me, that's I think our best bet of bolstering our team and if Locke doesn't turn out to be the guy, we're not, like you said, you're not going to sit there kicking yourself saying, oh my gosh, where did our picks go? Like, what have we done to ourselves? Now we're now we're totally, you know, shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. You know what? Let me just say something about Drew Locke. And I don't know if I said this on this podcast before, but and it's a point that my good friend uh, uh, Eric uh, reminded me of. Eric, uh, Eric, Drew Locke should not be considered a bust because he was not picked in the first round. People have to remember that Drew Locke was an experiment that fell from a, what was predicted to be a first round pick, but he fell all the way to the second round. So if Drew Locke does not improve and he does not embedder himself next season, I don't think that he should be viewed as a bust. Like you would say Paxton Lynch, who was picked dead last in 2016 but he was still picked in the first round, you know, and it was no surprise that Locke was the guy that John Elway wanted. And if, if Denver didn't trade down that, and that draft, he pretty much, it was pretty much guaranteed that John Elway was going to pick Drew Locke. At, uh, what was it in the 10th with the 10th pick? Instead, he traded uh, with uh, the Steelers. Denver moved down, but they got two picks uh, in the second round. And then we all know what happened. Elway went out and got fans. He went and got Dalton Reisner, and then he went and got Drew Locke. So his whole thing in terms of drafting was actually better. But it, it just people just have to be patient. And the same thing I say with uh, with Vic Fangio. Vic Fangio, by his third year with the, when he was with the Bears in 2018, he turned that defense around, and the Bears defense was just 
fantastic. They were hitting. They were running on all cylinders. They were covering up for the offense, which was struggling. And obviously, in that point in time, Vic Fangio was only the defensive coordinator, so he couldn't do anything about the offense. So I have hope that Vic Fangio's third year in Denver, especially knowing that his feet are going to be so close to the fire if it doesn't shape out, that whatever changes and players we get back on defense should all be for the better. Few rapid fire comments on that. This year we had six defensive backs that were on IR by the end of the year. Uh, on top of that, um, we had over fifty percent, no more than fifty percent, sixty or sixty-five percent of our IR uh, was on our defensive side of the ball, and the overwhelming majority, or majority rather, of our starters on defense ended up on IR before the year ended. So all those projected starters that we had there. They're, they were gone for the year. So the fact that we ended up doing as well as we did should really be, especially on defense, because our defense did not did not go to this like, you know, we didn't tank per se on defense. We actually kept at a pretty high level in terms of our, our defense, considering where we really struggled was actually an offense, which oddly enough, if you'd like to look by comparison, uh, we only had one offensive starter that was meant to, that was slated for week one to start who was on IR. Uh, so again, you know, the disparity between the two sides of the ball and yet our defensive uh, caliber of play did not decline. I mean, it declined, but it did not decline to the same level or degree as, you know, relative to the number of off, uh, defensive starters that we lost. Um, now, on, on to your point there, last year in the draft, we literally went almost completely offense in, in almost all rounds. My concern this year, and I really hope that that Fangio gets his fair shake, is he needs defensive players. He needs a refresh on the defense of this uh, of our team. We can't continuously go after aging, either aging veterans, failing veterans on their uh, on their teams. We need to start refreshing our team through younger players to help bolster and start leveraging the defensive minds that we have on our coaching staff. So I really, really want to see Fangio get his defensive guys, not just defensive guys, but I want his defensive guys that he has selected out of the draft. Because if he is going to fail, I want him to fail because of uh, the people that he selected and so that it is then on him rather than on people that he was not provided. No, I totally agree with you, Rich. And I'm kind of glad that the Broncos didn't decide to move on from him this year, even if we didn't have a raging pandemic going forward, because even without the pandemic, if let's say that never happened, the injury bug alone, I mean, you can't really blame Fangio for that. And I, I, I give him all the credit in the world for trying to, to make do with guys that have never even been heard of, guys that were literally pulled up from random practice squads who didn't get to sit down and learn all the, the defensive schemes and whatnot. But like like we said at the beginning of the show, all that stuff, that safety net is, is completely gone. So Vic Fangio, if he has any hidden tricks, any hidden plays, anything, he has to bring it with him. Because if, if what we've seen from Peyton so far is that he's in it, he's in it to win it. And we saw what he did, what he tried, well, what he tried to do with uh, with Ma trying to get Matthew Stafford to Denver. And thankfully, he was smart enough not to go big and you know bite on who the Rams may have wanted 
uh, for or not the Rams. I'm sorry, the uh, the Lions may have wanted. They may have wanted one of our key offensive pieces. They may have wanted one of our defensive key pieces. And I'm really glad that our GM didn't bite and say, okay, we'll give you, let's say, Von Miller, or you know, we'll give you uh, uh, Bryce Callahan, or, or you, you know, one of our star players for somebody of. Uh, like Matt Stafford, who, don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing Stafford. I think he's going to do really good out in Los Angeles. He's going to have, he has a better defensive team. Uh, he has a really better offensive coach. So the sky's the limit for him out there. But I just don't think it's time to give up on Drew Locke yet. And hopefully, as we get closer to free agency, that this whole thing about trying to get Deshaun Watson or these rumors about uh, Russell Wilson trying to test, uh, the, or flirting with free agency, all that stuff just dies down and, and goes away completely. Uh, yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, I, I, I'm just concerned when you see... So, for example, when you look at the Stafford deal, I mean, that would have crippled our team. Like, literally crippled our team. Mm-hmm. Uh and I heard through the sources and stuff on the internet and what have you, um, reliable ones, like, you know, you have your Schefter and, and, you know, the guys that are pretty much plugged in. The Lions, the Lions basically wanted Drew Locke in that trade because you look at what the Lions got from the Rams. They wanted a swap. They didn't, they didn't want to start from scratch completely. They wanted someone who you know, showed that they could do it in the NFL. Not necessarily that they were doing it really well, but they at least could do it in the NFL. And I think part of the reason for that was because Sean McVay is Sean McVay. He's kind of like a Vic Fangio, except on the offensive side of the ball. So he's looking at it saying, no worries. I can look at the strengths and we'll build on that. So, you know, we're good. Um, And then meanwhile, Sean McVay was looking at Stafford and saying, Oh, he's got more skills and I'm me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, you know, it's a win-win situation, I think, for both for both parties and, you know, involved there. And, and on the, the Lions side, they felt that they had a seasoned veteran who was proven and made it to the Super Bowl in um, Jared Goff. And it was clear that, that the Rams were not feeling him and did not like kind of what he brought to the table. So it's unfortunate, but I just don't think that it was in our best interest. Because I even said on our pod earlier, if we were going to get Stafford, Locke was an absolute no-go for me. I wanted him to stay on our team because Stafford has been hurt a few times. And on top of that, if, if your gripe and your issue with Locke is that he hasn't progressed and you feel he needs to learn and he needs to progress and do all those sorts of things... Who better to learn from than someone like Matt Stafford, who's basically a very similar quarterback, mm-hmm. right? And so, if you're just gonna, if you're gonna, you're gonna bring in the seasoned veteran and then kick out the guy that you potentially want to learn behind him, then you're actually hurting the team more than you're helping the team long term, not just short term. Um, and on the flip side of all of this, if Locke does not turn out to be the guy. He's also, in my opinion, arguably an ideal bridge quarterback because he was never meant to be, he never came out of the draft as this highly touted, you know, going to set the NFL on fire type guy. He was always touted as he needs a little bit of work. And 
this now affords the Broncos the opportunity to build both lines, both the offensive defensive lines, particularly in the interior. And I also think we need a right tackle in the worst way. Um, <laughs> and, and even if Locke doesn't turn out to be the guy, you build out those lines, bring in another rookie. Mm-hmm. It won't be 2022. It'll probably be 2023. Right. And I think that at that point there, you're looking at a better rookie class of quarterbacks. Yeah, well, I mean, with the Rams, the Rams are literally, they're not in Vegas, but they literally threw all their chips in the table and say and said, we're gambling our first round futures with guys like uh, Jalen Ramsey and Aaron, Aaron signing Aaron Donald. And now you have Matt Stafford in there. So it's, it's literally, they're literally a Super Bowl or bus team at this point, because if it doesn't work out, and they don't make a Super Bowl or even win a Super Bowl for that matter, then, you know, everything that they've done is going to be for naught when they have to sit there and watch other teams pick players in their position. Can we just pull Vic's comment there? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Vic says, Locke has all the tools to succeed, but does he have the heart? The heart to put in the work and correct his issues and the heart to lead. I think this is a great thing to kind of come to the tail end and kind of wind down the show with to kind of have these kind of comments, leave everyone with some stuff to think about. And uh, hopefully they can like, share and distribute our our, our show and we can go from there. Um, in, in my opinion, um, Locke has the tools to succeed. But what he did not show us last season was the willingness to take elements of his game and improve on them knowing that they were issues and they could be issues. So what we didn't see as Broncos fans this like between last offseason and this season that has now just ended was he was throwing off his back foot. He was throwing um, to the wrong side of his receivers or, or ball placement as being an issue. He was having troubles reading defenses. Um, and he didn't pick one of those things and fix it. And I think as a Broncos fan, for me, that was one of the most frustrating things that I saw of Drew is that he did not fix one of those top three things. And I think that if he had chose particularly the ball placement issue as his one thing to correct and fix, um, which ultimately was probably also tied a little bit to his throwing off the back foot, um, <laughs> uh, then I think he would have done much better. I think he would have improved. I think that he would have taken the leaps that we as Broncos fans wanted him to do. And Vic, as much as I would like to agree with a comment like that, um, I think part of leading is looking inward at yourself and identifying things that you need to work on. And I think that's what so many Broncos in this past Super Bowl week pointed out about Peyton Manning coaches and players is he would come in with a notebook and say here's all the stuff i did wrong now let's fix them Mm -hmm. who's going to argue when their best player on your team comes in and says i messed up nobody because you're just looking at that and saying that's who i want to follow that's who i want to lead and that's why i'm following and and that's why they're leading me into battle agreed very well said rich uh we're running out of time so let me just quickly say uh that i do think that julak can be the future he just needs to clear up and change uh, all the mistakes that he made uh last season which was throwing off of his back foot learning to trust his pocket a little more the accuracy that's something that uh, cannot really be taught that's something that he has to learn to work on his own 
and just basically learning how to read a defense. He's going into his third year. He should be able to learn how to read most defenses and be able to call uh, the audibles. So that just uh, that's just basically what he needs to do. But he has a lot to prove. Um, so with that being said, uh, guys, that's going to be do it for our show. Uh, thanks for tuning in and sitting down with us and talking about Super Bowl and uh, Bronco stuff that we uh, and anything that we did or did not get to. We do apologize. Uh, unfortunately, an hour just goes by so fast. So uh, make sure you follow us at MHRT Podcast on YouTube, Facebook, and on Twitter. Uh, you can follow myself at uh, A, the number six, FT10 Mexican, a six foot 10 Mexican altogether. My co host at R I C H I R I C H E H. You can uh, IDM us or uh, t- uh, tag us on Twitter on any comments, questions, ideas you have about us or about the show in general. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube, you follow us on Facebook, and you uh, like so you can keep up to date on anything that's Broncos talk or my high round table related. So with that being said, Oh, before I forget, if you're listening to us on anchor after the fact, please make sure if you want to be a supporter to support the show, like our good friend, Chris Hernandez, uh, shout out to him. Thanks for being a supporter and make sure wherever it is, you're listening to us on audio to always come back on Tuesdays. If you want to catch the show live. So for my co-host, Rich, I'm a Don Diaz. Have a good night. So long Broncos country. Thank you.